And so begin uh, this morning just looking at one uh, one verse, just the very first verse, uh, James chapter 1, uh, verse 1. And uh, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Take the Lord's blessing on this, His word. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the rich blessing that your word is to us. And as we begin this new study, and as we come to this one verse today, well, we just pray that you would give us understanding and insight by the power of your spirit. We pray that your spirit would truly go forth in the, uh, as your, with your word, and that it would truly bring about that great and abundant fruit in our hearts. Uh, that we pray, Lord, that you would uh, bring about that growth and increase. All for your glory and your honor and your praise. And we just ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the letter of James, somewhat like the letter to the Philippians, which we just finished, is a letter which uh, is filled with very practical exhortations about how we're to live as believers in Christ Jesus. doesn't matter whether we are in the 1st century or the 21st century, these lessons truly apply. In fact, in the age which we now live, in which we see the influence of Christianity seeming to be waning does seem as though we're a lot closer to the pre-Christian age of the first century than in previous generations. And this is evidenced in part, at least, by the fact that it's increasingly getting more and more difficult to distinguish the church from the world. It's truly sad. Much of the the broad evangelical church has uh, sought to imitate the world in so many ways instead of standing out from from the world. It makes it very difficult to know where the line is between the church and the world. So that something very simple and basic as even living a godly life is, is certainly critical today. Because as as those who have been called out of the darkness of sin in the world through faith in Jesus Christ, we must then live differently as we seek to walk in the light of the gospel and in the word of God. And of course, James is a great little book to challenge us in this very thing. To challenge us to not only boldly profess our faith in Christ, but to actually live it out. So that we would stand as witnesses to the glory and the power of the gospel. And so this morning we begin our study of the book of James with just an introduction to this book. And in doing so we're going to look to answer three questions. Who is James? To whom is he writing? And why is he writing to them and ultimately 
to us through the Spirit. And so the first question is, who is James? Now, if you read through the New Testament, you'll quickly see that there are several Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. And so which one of them is responsible for writing this letter? Well, first we have James, the brother of John, who was uh, one of the sons of Zebedee, was one of the twelve, and was also one of the three closest companions of Jesus during his uh, earthly ministry, along with Peter and John. Right? We often see uh, Peter, James, and John uh, going off to uh, with Jesus by themselves, and they uh, those three were privileged to, for example, to accompany Jesus when he raised up uh, the daughter of Jairus. Uh, and then later when he went and was transfigured on the mountain, it was those three who were there to witness that glorious sight. And then, of course, it was those three that Jesus took with him uh, when he went a little bit further into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to pray on that night that he was to be betrayed and then uh, on the eve of his death. And so that's... One of the Jameses. Well, that particular James, is, uh, was he was actually, though, the first of the twelve, uh, at least that we have record of, the first to be martyred. And we find this in Acts 12, verse 2. We read that King Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so here's this James, uh, very prominent in the, throughout the Gospels, and yet in Acts 12, uh, he is the first of the twelve to be put to death. Uh, this was in... 44 AD when that took place uh, because Herod uh, died shortly thereafter. And so it's not likely though then that this is the James who wrote this particular letter. Well, then we have James the son of Alphaeus who was also uh, one of the twelve. Then he's mentioned in each of the lists of the disciples in the Gospels and also uh, the list of the disciples given in Acts chapter 1. But there, uh, then this particular James, son of Alphaeus, just seems to disappear from uh, the pages of history. We don't really know what happened to him. And so it's doubtful that he was the one who wrote this letter. Well, that leaves us then with James, the brother of Jesus, or we might say the half-brother of Jesus, since he was the actual biological son of Mary and Joseph. Remember, after the miraculous conception and and the birth of the Lord Jesus, Mary and Joseph had at least four sons and several daughters. Now, we're not told the names of Jesus' sisters, but in Matthew 13, we have the names of his brothers. They're James, Joseph, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. Well, given how James is here listed in each of these lists, he's the first one uh, that's listed. It very likely indicates that he was the oldest brother in the family after Jesus. But what's interesting is that during the, the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus, his brothers did not believe in him. In fact, they ridiculed him. It wasn't until after his resurrection from the dead that his brothers would believe that their own brother Jesus was the Messiah. And we know this because we find the brothers of Jesus with Mary uh, in prayer, uh, along with the other apostles in the upper room. They're united together in prayer after Jesus ascended uh, into heaven in Acts chapter 1. 
And then Paul tells us later in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James in particular after his, res- uh, after his resurrection. And this is the James whom Paul refers to in Galatians 1.19 as the Lord's brother. And so this James... The brother of Jesus, one who was uh, at first skeptical of the claims that Jesus was making to be the Messiah or to be uh, the Son of God, has now come to believe in him for salvation. And it's very likely that this is the James who writes this letter. And of course, Jude or Judas, who was the youngest brother of Jesus and James, he would go on to write that small letter right before the book of Revelation, the book of Jude uh, in the New Testament. But it wasn't because James was the brother of Jesus that qualified him to write this authoritative letter in the early church. No, this James, once he did believe in Jesus as the Lord and Christ, he quickly became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Now, it's true that he was not an apostle in the strict sense of the word, as we find defined uh, in Acts chapter 1. But James was certainly noted by Paul as being one of the pillars among the apostles in Galatians chapter 2. We see this even as early as Acts 12. Again, after Peter is miraculously delivered from prison by the angels of the Lord, Peter is eager that his deliverance be reported to James and to the brethren. The singling out of James to receive this news that he was... Uh, seems to give evidence that he may have been in some position of authority at the time. This is confirmed in Acts 15, as James is the one presiding over the Jerusalem Council. Now, the Jerusalem Council, in effect, is uh, the very first presbytery meeting. Remember, Paul and Barnabas and elders from some of the Gentile churches have come to Jerusalem, uh, troubled by Jewish believers who were uh, seeking to impose Old Testament ceremonial laws onto Gentile believers, especially the practice of circumcision. And so the council was called with the apostles and the elders of the church all gathered together. And James here appears to be serving what we would call in the position of the moderator presiding over the meeting. And in Acts 15, we see Peter and and Paul and Barnabas all are given opportunity to speak on the matter. But then it's James is the one who offers up the final words of resolution. And this is what he says in Acts 15, beginning at verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. The apostles and the elders agreed to James' counsel here. and In fact, they sent a letter written very likely by James. They sent a letter by the hand of Paul and Barnabas to take to these Gentile churches to share with them the decision of this, uh, of this council. Now it's interesting, James' concern in this decision of the, the council is that though the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are not to be imposed upon the Gentile believers, part of what he's doing here is that the Gentile believers, he's calling them to be sensitive to their Jewish brethren who continue uh, some of these cultural observances. And of course, in the epistle of James, 
we'll see that there's an emphasis on the profitable use of the moral law in the life of the believer that applies both to Jew and Gentile Christians. And this parallel concern, and even some unique word choices that are found both in Acts 15 and and the Epistle of James, indicate that the author of the Epistle is very likely the same James who oversaw the Jerusalem Council. In fact, it seems that uh, since there's no mention in James about the issues uh, raised in the Jerusalem Council, that it's very likely that the Epistle of James was likely written uh, before the meeting of the council. And then we know the meeting of the council uh, was sometime around 50 A.D. So sometime between uh, 44 A.D. and 50 A.D., James is writing this letter. So the author of James was the brother of Jesus. He was also a prominent leader in the church at Jerusalem. Now, some have actually questioned uh, his author, the authorship of James because he doesn't mention either of these important connections, right? That is, he didn't boast about them. He didn't say, James, the brother of Jesus, and, and lead elder in Jerusalem. I'm really somebody important. Now, certainly to make that kind of an ad- identification would really kind of boost his authority. People say, hey, this is the brother of Jesus. This is the, the James that was leading the council. But James, who would become known in the early church as James the Just, he's not out to prove his authority. He isn't that kind of person at all. In fact, he'll later go on to charge in, uh, in his letter in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And so James' warning here is, is a warning against showing favoritism or, in, or partiality because of who a person is or who they are and who the position or what the position is that they, uh, that they might have. Now he certainly doesn't expect to be treated differently because of his relationship to Jesus and because of his position of authority in in the church. No, James, throughout his letter, and even here in the greeting, expresses great humility. He humbly identifies himself as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this greeting says much about James' character and the understanding of his faith. Even, even if, if that faith came later in life, it really speaks volumes about how James viewed himself in relation to the Lord. See, a bondservant was a slave. And that James is now no longer living for himself, but he's a, and he's a servant not only of God, but also of his brother, the Lord Jesus. Now, those who have older brothers might sometimes feel like they're enslaved by their older siblings. But here, James willingly humbles himself because he knows that Jesus isn't just his brother, but is in fact the very Son of God, his Lord and Messiah. And so when James charges in chapter 4, verse 10, "...humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord," Well, he's not calling his readers or us to do something 
that he himself hasn't done. Now we may wonder if James ever struggled with regret, right? Did he wonder at some time, well, you know, I wish I've, if only I would have acknowledged Jesus as my Lord and Christ earlier in life. Imagine if I would have done that when he was still alive and I could have asked him a lot of questions and and just it would have been very different. Now truly, if James is like us, well, it's quite possible that he had those kinds of of thoughts and regrets. But he doesn't let on to that here, and he certainly doesn't dwell on what's in the past. Because for the present, and now on into the future, James has committed himself to be a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. And so this epistle that he writes, then it becomes a call for others, even for us, to live the same committed life of service to the glory of God. But we also discover here, again, a deeper understanding that James has come to have about about his faith and about who his brother was. Remember, James grew up, he didn't just grow up in the same town as Jesus, but he grew up in the same house. And and certainly in many ways, Jesus was no different from, from his other brothers. But when Jesus began his public ministry, James and his other brothers mocked him in unbelief. And they even wondered to themselves at one point whether he had gone mad, if he was out of his mind. But all this would change after Jesus rose from the dead. Suddenly, they would see with new eyes. They would see with the eyes of faith. That Jesus wasn't only the Messiah or the Christ, uh, but He was the Lord. He was the Son of the living God. And yet deeper still, we see James' understanding here, as he'll confess later in chapter 2, that it isn't enough to simply say, I believe in Jesus. But he says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And so he's saying there, basically, you mustn't only believe, but you must give evidence of your belief. Your faith should bear fruit in your life as you seek to serve God and Christ. And this applies to James, even as it applies to us today. And so it's this James, the brother of Jesus, a leader in the church at Jerusalem, and yet a humble servant of the Lord who's writing this letter. Well, this leads us to the next question. To whom is he writing? He notes here that he's writing to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Now the twelve tribes, hopefully, kind of triggers in your minds and your knowledge of of the Scriptures. uh, It's a clear reference to the twelve tribes of Israel. Right? One, one tribe for each of the sons of Jacob. That became the nation of, of Israel. And these 12 tribes, that were, uh, they made up that united nation of Israel during the reign of, of Saul and David and then Solomon. And then, of course, after Solomon, uh, the kingdom divided. And the 10 tribes to the north became the, uh, the nation of Israel and the two tribes to the south became the nation of Judah. And so James' use of the 12 12 tribes here 
indicates that he's writing to Jews who obviously had become Christians. In fact, many commentators have noted that the epistle of James is very Jewish and that it contains uh, references, words, and phrases that those who were Jewish would understand uh, easily without explanation. And not only that, but as James demonstrates, these understandings easily carry over into this new way of living with faith in Christ Jesus. To James... Christ and the church haven't replaced Israel, but they are the fulfillment of it. Uh, Some of the old ways, like the ceremonial laws, have surely passed away, but the moral law, which James expounds in chapter 2, the covenant promises to Abraham and the call to to draw near to God in faith and, and in life, to be as God's people, these things have not passed away but they reach their fullest expression in Christ Jesus. And so this is different than what we find in some of the Gospels and even in many of Paul's letters where the audience is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles or predominantly Gentiles, right? Philippians, they were predominantly Gentiles. Well, James is writing to those who are predominantly Jews who had become Christians. But what does he mean, though, by those who are scattered abroad. Well, the scattering or dispersion of the Jews refers to the period in Israel's history when they were conquered and sent into exile. The first dispersion happened to the ten northern tribes of Israel in 722 BC when they were conquered by the Assyrians and then they were driven to various lands. It was very common during that time uh, for conquering nations to to come in to remove those uh, whom they had conquered from the land that was their own, their homeland, and then divide them up and then and then send them to different lands as a way to kind of break their identity as a people and to keep them from uniting together and rising up in rebellion. It was a very effective strategy. Well, then in 586 B.C., the remaining two tribes in Judah were also dispersed by the Babylonians. But as you remember, 70 years later, after when King Cyrus of Persia gave his decree that the Jews could then return to their homeland, well, many who were, had been living in these faraway places for uh, now several decades, many of those chose to stay in those faraway lands because they had already established a, a way of life. Not everyone returned back to, uh, to Jerusalem and to, uh, to Judah. But those who stayed in distant lands, or, or those who, who did stay, were known, came to be known as the Diaspora, or the Jews of the Dispersion. And in some of these areas, like Alexandria, which was in northern Africa, there was actually a, quite a large settlement of Jews. But though this explains how the twelve tribes of the Jews got dispersed, how is it that James here is writing to Christians in those places? It's likely at this time that the great missionary, the Apostle Paul, had actually just begun his first missionary journey, and some of these remote areas wouldn't have yet been touched by his ministry. So if not through Paul, then who? Well, there are likely two key ways. The first, we discover in Acts chapter 2. 
on the day of Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost was one of the three great feast days in which all Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And so there would have been many Jews from all these faraway places. They had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast when the Holy Spirit was then poured out upon the disciples in a great and amazing way. And remember, they came forth from the upper room speaking in foreign tongues. And and those who were there, who were born in all these faraway places, heard these Galileans speaking in their own native tongues the wonderful works that God had accomplished through Christ. And if you would note in Acts chapter 2, the places Luke says that were representative uh, of people that were there that day. Uh, Acts chapter 2, 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. So really the whole region of what we might call the, uh, the, you know, the, the Middle East or the Eurasia, that whole region had representatives there in Jerusalem that day. And again, these are just a few of the many areas where the Jews had been dispersed. And again, remember the positive response to, to Peter's preaching that day, that there were over 3,000 who repented and came to faith in Christ. Well, it's quite likely that these new believers then carried the good news of the gospel back home with them and shared it with their family and their friends back in these faraway places. But there's another way that the gospel would have gotten to such distant places so quickly. And that is, of course, the outbreak of persecution. This came in full force when Saul, who would later become Paul, began persecuting the church with great vengeance. And in fact, after Stephen was martyred, we read in Acts chapter 8, at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then later in Acts chapter 11, we read this. They go even further. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so you had these Jews who had been in Jerusalem, Persecution breaks out. They go from Jerusalem to other parts of Judea and Samaria. And then the persecution increases in those places. And they go even further. And as they go, they're primarily sharing the gospel with their fellow Jews in these faraway places. And so persecution pushes these Jewish believers out of Jerusalem... And so it would only be natural then, again, to seek refuge in other ethnic Jewish communities throughout the Mediterranean region. And again, taking with them the life-changing message of the gospel. And since one of the themes in the epistle of James is bearing up under hardship and persecution, 
Well, it's certainly appropriate that the humble pastor, all the way back in Jerusalem, would now send a letter in order to build them up and to encourage them and to challenging them to keep living out their faith in Christ. And so this then leads to the timing of this writing. <clears throat> when did James write this? Well, we already noted that it was likely before 50 A.D. and after 44 A.D. And again, that uh, the mention of the Jerusalem Council, or the, 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 um, since there's no mention of the Jerusalem Council, it would have been before uh, 50 A.D. And so James uh, was... Uh, written much earlier than that. In fact, uh, many scholars believe that uh, James is actually the very first book of the New Testament that was actually uh, put down in writing. And there are many reasons for this. Uh, One that we've already noted is the fact that James is writing to primarily Jewish believers with little to no reference to Gentile believers. The gospel first went to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And this reflects the progression even of those who are persecuted. We also see that when James speaks of the believer's assembly in chapter 2, he uses the Greek word for synagogue. Though he does use the term uh, church in chapter 5, it seems as though his understanding was that the believers were still meeting in the synagogues. Another indication that this was written rather early is that James has little emphasis on doctrine. Not that he has no doctrine at all, but as we noted earlier, his key emphasis is on practical living. Seeing a smooth transition from Judaism to Christianity, James doesn't feel the need to elaborate, as Paul would, on setting a doctrinal background before teaching on more practical issues. See, because in James' mind, these Jewish believers, they already had the doctrinal background found in the Old Testament Scriptures, which clearly speak of the purpose and mission of Christ. Like the early sermons of the Apostles in Acts, we'd see that they're all rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures. And that the only need is to make the connecting, uh, connect the dots to see how Jesus had come in fulfillment of those Old Testament Scriptures. So they already had the doctrinal background in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so it seems that James probably wrote this letter in the early to the mid-40s A.D. Well, finally, we come to why James is writing this letter. We've already hit on several reasons why, but again, the overarching reason in James is James' desire that these believers would diligently live out their faith in very practical ways. Commentators note that James uses the imperative or the commanding verb form over 50 times in this short letter. And so if you ever want to know what you're to do or how you're to live as a Christian, well, read the book of James. That's the place to find out. In fact, this highly practical emphasis is one of the reasons why many people love the book of James. It's filled with simple, brief, and yet pointed charges and commands, much like we find in the book of Proverbs. There's count it all joy. Ask of God, do not be deceived. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Be be doers of the word. That's just in chapter 1. 
James will tell us clearly and directly how we are to live. But we have to be careful with all this doing and living. Because James doesn't charge us to do this or to do that so that we can earn God's favor or secure our faith and salvation by our works. No, not at all. James presumes that they're already believers in Christ by God's grace, even as he is. But he desperately wants them and he wants us to show others the faith that we have by our works and by living out our lives in a way that truly glorifies God. And so practical living is the overall theme of James' epistle. But what are some of the areas that we can expect to be challenged then to live out in faith to the glory of God as we study this letter of James? We've already mentioned humility. Humility toward God and humility toward one another. And of course that was one of the key themes in the book of Philippians as well. Those who humble themselves before the Lord, the Lord will exalt. Again, here we need to be mindful of our pride. It's pride which often leads us to sin. And in connection to this is the warning against showing favoritism or giving preferential treatment to the rich over the poor, to the strong over the helpless, to the haves over the have-nots. And so James will address issues of economic inequality, and yes, even social justice. Two issues which we hear quite a bit about in our own day. But how are these pursued in a God-glorifying way? We'll find out in the book of James. We knew already that James will challenge us over the role of the moral law in the life of the believer, defining for us the nature and source of sin and what causes us to stumble. We'll learn about how to deal with temptation and and anger and how to put off all kinds of filthiness and wickedness. And then in chapter 3, we'll be challenged to tame our tongues, which can so easily tear down and destroy. And this even right after we've used it to speak blessing. We'll be challenged to seek wisdom which comes not from the world, but from God through His Word and through the work of His Spirit in us. We'll be challenged to pray the profitable prayers of righteousness that accomplish much for the glory of God. And finally, James will challenge us to not just be those who come here week after week as simple hearers of God's Word, but that we might be doers of His Word, showing our faith to others by our works, ministering to the poor and the needy in the name of Christ, shunning evil and pursuing righteousness, and especially persisting in all these things, even while enduring many trials and suffering and even persecution for our faith. Now as you hear all this, can all of a sudden seem rather daunting. How can we possibly uh, meet all these challenges and, and live a godly life to the glory of God? But beloved of God, that's where the underlying doctrine and theology of James really comes shining through. Because as we read through all these very practical challenges... 
we easily get overwhelmed with the task that is set before us. We are quickly realizing that we how woefully we fall short and how totally unable in our own strength that we're even to we can't even make a fair go of it. It's then, beloved of God, that we should draw our attention to what James says in chapter 4, verse 6. But he that is God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, as we humble ourselves, before the Lord Jesus Christ, as we would submit to His rule and to His authority in our lives, He will give us grace. He will give us the strength. He will give us the wisdom. He will give us the the fortitude that we need to endure all the trials, all the suffering, all the afflictions, all the persecution that we may face in this life. He will give us the grace so that we can endure and so that we can glorify Him with how we live our lives. Truly, may we be challenged in this study with the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon us to do this, to live for the glory of God, all for His glory and honor and praise. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for your word to us. And as we look forward and hopefully our appetites are, are eager to dive into this letter of the book of James and the richness that is here, the challenges that set before us, but just to have this great reminder that we would not get so overwhelmed by how can we do all these things, but that we would truly rest in You alone, as we sang earlier in Psalm 62, that we would rest in Your grace, because You will give us the grace that we need as we humble ourselves before You. And we do pray, Lord, that as we Uh, go through this study over the next several months. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to truly live these lives, that there is a true distinction between how the world lives and how we live, and that many would see that in us and take note of it and even ask us for the reason of the hope that is in us and that we would be equipped at that time with your Spirit to give them the words of truth, the gospel, that they too might be challenged to live for your glory in all that they do. Father, we pray that you would help our congregation here to be such a faithful witness in this community and that there would be many who would come to Christ through our witness. We ask, Father, that you would impress these truths upon our own hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.